All right, let's begin. We'll go back up here, mind you, the uh, outline. Categorize this. So now we're going to talk about why we need arguments. Why do we need arguments? Which is a, a funny way to put that is that we're going to give an argument for arguments. And I have a book out. I wanted to bring it today, but the paperback didn't come out in time. And it's called The Twelve Arguments. How to show what's clear about God from general revelation. And the first chapter is titled this, An Argument for Arguments. That's the first argument of the twelve. Why do we even need arguments at all? So let's talk about that a little bit. Why do we need arguments? Now, remember back up to our last talk and how we began with, does God exist or not? What question did we ask right away? What do you mean by God? We can't jump into this, is it true or false God exists without knowing what's meant by God? So we define God. Well, that's the same thing we'll have to do here. What are arguments? What is an argument? And really, I want to go back a little bit before that and ask this question. What is philosophy? I'm going to give a definition from Peter Vermigli. If you've been on my YouTube page, you'll, you'll see a lecture on this a few weeks back. Peter Vermigli, Reformed theologian. And he said, philosophy, we often define philosophy as the uh, love of wisdom from the word itself, philosophia. But he said, it's also Seeking to be clear or clarity, having clarity. And that's from a related term, philosophia, if you have a saphia here, which he said were, he thinks are related in the, in the Greek. So being wise, at least you can see it this way. If you say you're wise in some field, Say uh, you're really wise at plumbing and someone says, oh good, I'm, I'm down here. Can you hand me the monkey wrench? Say, uh, which one's that again? Well, that's just the basics, right? You don't know the basics about a clear difference between a crescent wrench and a monkey wrench. Well, then you're not wise in plumbing. So you're in any field, you'd want to have clarity of what things are, right? Imagine you have a plumber come over and they, I found your problem, I fixed it. Oh good, you took care of the downstairs bathroom that was leaking? No, I fixed the upstairs one. There wasn't a leak at all. Well, you didn't get the right problem. So you weren't wise. You weren't able to solve the problem. So we need clarity, and that's what arguments are aiming at. An argument aims at clarity. We want to clarify or be clear about the terms in the argument 
about the premises in the argument and about how we infer the conclusion from the premises. I've just finished making an, an online logic class. If you've been to our webpage, you know that we offer free online classes. And we're currently offering one on God and morality. The next one up will be on logic. So today we're not going to get into a lot of details about inferences. But just know that we do offer that resource, so that'll be out probably in May. And you can take that for free and you'll learn a lot of the nuts and bolts of logic. And what I liked about it, as I was making these videos, while well, I was thinking, what's better th about my uh, class than the one I took is just this much. Not that I'm a better teacher, but you can pause the video and rewind it. When I was taking logic classes live, you can't pause this instructor, right? So it gets technical, but it's a video, so you can stop it, go back and say, wait, wait, what? What did you just say? And go at your pace. Because honestly, I think when you get into logic, if it's intimidating at first, once you get past that, you get into it, it's really interesting how, how ideas relate and work together. So that's coming out. That's on, uh, I should put a few of our web pages up here because that's on courses.generalrevelation.com. All those are online for free. And then there's also generalrevelation.com where we have our blog and posts for our uh, conferences coming up. So notice three things here. Terms, premises, and conclusions in an argument. And we want to be clear about each of these. that's what philosophy is concerned about in general. You'll find philosophers doing that, talking about ideas, trying to clarify what ideas they had in mind, what your ideas are, what my ideas are, and especially about basic questions. And when, when uh, Greg comes up here and tells us about why something is eternal, he'll, he'll explain why our most basic concept is about eternal. So we'll come to that in a little bit. In other words, philosophy begins with that question. What is real or eternal? And that's to distinguish philosophy from false philosophy or uh, worldly philosophy. We're told about this in Colossians. You might remember Colossians specifically warning 2.8. Beware. Lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. 
according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. All right, so imagine what that means. Some people read this just as beware of philosophy, period. Because it says, cheat you through philosophy. Anderson's a philosopher, so he's going to try to cheat you. Now, that person who says this needs to take my logic class. Because what they've done is treated a particular predicate as if it was a universal predicate. Fallacy of overextension. Which I learn about that one. Say, I don't know what you're even saying right now. Good. That's what the, the whole point is. Just by knowing how predicates work, you could avoid that mistake. And you know, well, he's talking about particular philosophy, namely what's according to the traditions of men and the basic principles of this world, not according to Christ. So I hope you see how that builds on the previous hour. You can't come to God without Christ. If you're giving arguments for God's existence, they have to bring up the reality of sin and need for redemption, which is only accomplished in Christ. To have fellowship with God, you'd have to have Christ. And so this is a, a critique, and it's, it's a correct critique, of what is called the God of the philosophers. An unmoved mover, an uncaused event. And they'll say how different that is than the God of the Bible. Yes, but then they make this mistake and they'll say, therefore you need the Bible. The philosophers use general revelation and that's all they got. You say, no, the philosophers didn't use general revelation. It, it was a bare minimal use of general revelation. So say God of the philosophers versus God of the Bible, but then make the mistake of thinking the philosophers used general revelation rather than the philosophers failed to see what is clear. That's why I said the last hour that the philosophers, the intellectuals maybe have a particular impediment rather than a, a benefit. So we have false philosophy. And we can challenge it and show it is false with an argument. Remember the psalmist did this? God doesn't see. And he gave an argument. If God made the eye, then he sees. And God made the eye, therefore he sees. So you'd have to question the premise. No, no, God didn't make the eye. Or you could make the eye but not see. But once you show that's true, and I like that he picked eye of all the things because the eye is important later in Darwinism. Darwin writes about how the eye could cause his theory problems. And he didn't know how detailed it was compared to us now. And it's what intelligent design people have focused in on, the eye, because you can't get an eye a little bit. It doesn't have any benefits to survival. You either have an eye or you don't have an eye. And have all the parts working together, you can't just like have them in a bag and shake up the bag and throw it out and an eyeball rolls out. So that turns out to be an important piece 
still, the fact of the eyeball and how it works, and I don't think the psalmist is speaking specifically about that, but I'm just telling you how, how these, this, these trains of thought still work. Could, could blind chance have produced the eye? No. The eye was made, created by God. And what the, what the atheist was saying in the psalm was that specifically God doesn't see, he doesn't know what's going on. God's unaware. And so the psalmist is giving an argument back. So false philosophy. So think about the uh, anatomy of an argument. I'm going to give you a formal anatomy and then we'll fill it in. All right. All S. Let me think about which variables to use here. Trip myself up by not have, by using say all men are mortal. Socrates is a man. Therefore, Socrates is mortal. This is the standard one. I was trying to put it. All M R S. being counterproductive for my purpose. I need to get the variables right, though. All right, that would get it right. So mortal, mortal, Socrates, Socrates. All right, so the anatomy of an argument. You have terms here. And any argument, these are called syllogisms, categorical syllogisms, has three terms. Men, in this case, mortal or Socrates, or the technical variables here are the uh, subject and the predicate of the <coughs> conclusion. So here it's Socrates immortal. And then what is called the middle term, which is why M is used, middle term. Because what happens in an argument is these two terms that are in the conclusion were related to each other in the premises. So there's a relationship described in two premises, and from that you draw a conclusion. You make an inference about their relationship to each other. Or it could be they're not relationship to each other, because the relationship could be that they don't have one. That's a negative premise. This happens to be a positive one. So all arguments have this in common. are relating two terms to each other based on their relationship to a third term.
So from the two premises, an inference is drawn. That's the conclusion. And this act of making an inference is one of the acts of reason. And I joked about that in the last segment to say, that will be when you feel they are human. Animals have sensations and intuitions and instincts. When you have those, you're not yet distinguishing yourself from an animal. And some humans only live out of that level. You could just stay at that level your whole life. You might have humans who are, who are aspiring to be uh, in the vegetative state their whole life. Right? You just find them kind of just sitting on the couch with Dorito dust. Right? Vegetables absorb nutrients also. Uh, I don't know, they, right? And they grow, but that's about it. So when you're, when you're being a human, you're re using reason, you're distinguishing yourself from minerals, vegetables, and animals. Did you ever play a game of 20 questions and it'll say, mineral, vegetable, animal, none, human. You're reasoning, you're drawing inferences. And so that's a particular thing that you're getting to do at the level of arguments. To get to inferences, though, we need to be clear about the terms, what it is referred to, and the premises. Is this correct? See how you're building up to doing arguments? So all of that is to say, that's what we need to do about God. Giving an argument for God's existence. Now, what about false religion? Going back now, we talked about false philosophy. How about false religion? Because we don't want to think that it's religion versus philosophy. That's not what Paul was doing in Colossians chapter 1. False uh, religion, I don't know if you had to like, say which one's worse. They're both pretty bad. False Religion might be the worst one if you had to pick. It might be better to be around an honest materialist than a Pharisee, if you had to pick. Not that they're both, either one's good. But uh, in Amos 5, we're told God says he hates their religious observances and sacrifices. This is to the Jews in Jerusalem where they're supposedly keeping his commands. They were told to do this. They supposedly are doing it, and God hates it because they aren't actually seeking God. They don't understand. And again, just like the Pharisees in the time of Jesus, they keep the sacrifices in the temple, but they don't know who Jesus is. Well, wait a minute. You've been observing Passover and the Passover lamb, the lamb of God, all these years. You've been observing the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, and you don't know who the true lamb of God is? Then you don't know God. And that's what Jesus says to them, and that's when they particularly get upset. If you don't know me, you don't know my Father who sent me. You don't understand. And that's why I've been emphasizing that theme this morning. We're coming to have fellowship with God through understanding. Remember our motto... It is by faith we understand from Hebrews 11. 
Faith is not blind belief, it's understanding. And Hebrews 11 begins with this. God formed the world. Only God is eternal. And we fear God because of who he is and because we have violated his law. So from there, we get to our need for Christ. We can't just keep it in the abstract about who God is. So we have false philosophy and false religion. And we want to avoid both, not just be worried about false philosophy. So what are some alternatives to arguments? What do people rely on instead of forming beliefs, putting them together, drawing a conclusion? Well, they might rely on, I mentioned earlier, intuitions kind of immediate feelings, right? You might rely on, um, hey, this is like a gut feeling. And sometimes your gut feelings are wrong. I mean, are right. They're right just enough the way that a gambler's intuitions are right. Just enough to keep the gambler gambling and the house can take his money. So people will say, yeah, my intuitions, they're spot on. You look into it, you're not, no, they're not actually spot on. You're only, you have selective memory. You're only remembering the times. There was this one time, and it was an amazing story, so then you think your intuition's always right. I walked right into the casino, put a, a quarter in, pulled the handle, and I won 100 bucks. The first machine I saw is amazing. I've got great instincts. Where's the 100 bucks now? Oh, I lost that at poker. But the first machine I saw, so intuitions, how about uh, tradition? And this is where you could have religious tradition. I've always believed in God. Well, good, the demons believe too. They've always believed in God, apparently. Remember this guy, Damon? He'll, he'll be our standout example, Damon. I always believed in God. Yeah, that's, a lot of people say that, right? Did you understand God? Now that, so some people, that sounds surprising. You can never understand God. Well, you misunderstood. You, you think I mean comprehensively, like you understand all. I mean, you don't even comprehensively understand anybody. No, but you understand even the first things about God. When you say this, I've always believed in God. Did you, did you always, I think we could prove this true, because you're saying, yeah, since I was a little baby, well, we'll go up to the little babies that claim to always believe in God. Do they believe these things about God? Well, I believe there's a higher power. Yeah, I know. You are, you are, you are conditioned to believe there's a higher power because when you were a baby, you were in your crib, and you'd be uncomfortable and you'd cry. And a huge figure would hover over you and relieve your discomfort and then go away. And you grew up and that was your religion. And then... As you became a teenager, you realize that when you cry out to this huge higher power, it doesn't relieve your discomfort. So then you became angry and bitter at it and said, now I hate that higher power. Why won't it help me? So that's just Freudian conditioning. Freud describes all of that, that whole process. That's not getting to you knowing God. How about, uh, this one might seem odd. 
informal fallacies. Pseudo-arguments, and I'm gonna have Greg talk about this here now. A pseudo-argument means there are people who give arguments, they're just not actually sound arguments. This is aimed at persuasion, not truth. And a lot of people get, get stumbled, they stumble there because they'll say, well, I gave a sound argument and the people weren't persuaded. That's what you should expect. Read the book of Acts. Paul goes to Athens, gives a sound argument. Some of them mock him, and some of them say, we want to hear more. So I'm not suggesting that if you drop an argument on people, the whole crowd agrees. That has to do with their own subjective development, where they're at. But most of the arguments you see, and, and, and the example I do in my classes is I say, bring in 10 examples from ads. Because almost without exception, every advertisement is an informal fallacy. And I think that was actually the very first or close to the first episode of Mad Men, which is about Madison Avenue marketers in the 60s. And John Hamm's character, they were being hired by Lucky Strike Cigarettes to make an ad. And it was right after the Surgeon General had first issued the warning against cigarettes. So the Lucky Strike idea of people we're saying, what we need to do is say, our cigarettes have been proven to cause less cancer than the other cigarettes. Like, our, ours are the healthy cigarettes. And John Hamm's character said, that's a terrible argument, first off. Right? Like, we'll, we'll kill you less than the other guys. But really, people don't smoke for that reason. And his idea was this. You just have a picture of a guy smoking and looking satisfied, and the line says, life's hard. Because that's why people smoke. You might die in the car on the way home today. You, you'll have an argument with your spouse. You'll go to a job you don't hate. Life's hard. You don't care if you're going to get cancer in 30 years. You just care about getting through the day. And he's right. That's a good ad. Right? People bought cigarettes because life's hard. That's a pseudo-argument, though. You don't really, it's not even an argument in one sense. It's a pseudo-convincing argument. Uh, statement, right? It doesn't give you premise, premise, conclusion. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have Greg talk to you about some of these and then transition. We'll have our break and then he'll get into our next argument as well about what is uh, eternal. So I'm a Mac guy and uh, I'm intimidated by the PC keyboard. So I'm going to write up on the whiteboard um, as needed and uh, go from there. But I'm seeing it appears that they were learning some uh, psychology in here before. We've got the id, ego, and superego. Um, but uh, yeah, to get to uh, this uh, point about informal fallacies, I, for one, was convicted, especially by the first segment Dr. Anderson just gave us, uh, the, the biblical uh, term of fool. Um, we, uh, you know, still have the uh, ideas in our uh, being, and uh, to purge those is to be able to identify what is it that's tripping us up, what is it that's distracting us. And so, the way that I was thinking about this visually, as uh, Dr. Anderson was presenting it, uh, we have obviously the idea of the logos or the uh, 
giving an account of something um, or the word. And uh, we have that in John 1 as the eternal word of God. And that proceeds from God. Uh, it is God. It is a person in Christ. And so out of that, of course, we're going to have everything, every element, every aspect of life relating back to that word, back to that logos. Everything is going to be a revelation, general revelation of God. And so we have the logos. And as uh, Dr. Anderson's put up here, we have uh, uh, intuitions, intuitions. How do we make sense of our intuition in light of our humanity? Uh, or uh, tradition. Here we might also say uh, culture, right? Culture is not a bad thing, generally speaking. It's a human element as we're connected together. Um, we might also uh, say science, right? So we have these elements of who we are as mental beings. We need meaning. And we don't just need meaning, me, uh, you know, off trying to contemplate God, uh, who's in another distant realm, and the revelations that he's given of himself are up there. Uh, no, this is, the revelations are all around us. And so, uh, these should be interconnected into our understanding in the Logos, and we see that with university. It's uh, to be bringing all the, or universe, right? It's bringing all these versions or elements of of life and bringing them to focus on the core. What is that core? What is the, the, the perhaps here we'd say, what is the being uh, from which all uh, things proceed, right? So we'll talk about the eternal from that perspective. But as we look at uh, informal fallacies, these are uh, aimed at persuasion and not truth. And so we want truth about these things. How, how should I understand my intuition? I had, uh, you know, tax, tax season is upon us. And so I was talking to an accountant recently and she was talking with me about, you know, gut feelings and we've got to trust our gut feelings. And I thought, <laughs> okay, uh, maybe that's a good thing for an accountant to, to say to me, I'm not sure. Uh, but we have uh, intuitions and those, those need to be made sense of, but they can trip us up. And uh, we could be wrong. Uh, what, what sorts of uh, you know, life experiences uh, do you experience that in? Or tradition and culture. Now, uh, there's you know, an, a big informal fallacy here. Um, we, we see in tradition and culture, we can uh, give way to um, appeal to authority. And an appeal to authority is where uh, a supposed authoritative figure is speaking about something about which they're not an authority. So you may have a, a scientist speaking about philosophy, or you may have a scientist speaking about religion, um, as we, we uh, just heard about Freud, right? He's analyzing uh, behavioral elements, uh, conditioning from our earliest days, but uh, there's so much about belief that he's not engaged with. He's not understanding that. So we may often see uh, scientists claiming things about 
things that they should be speaking on. Th these are the fools, the ones that are uh, referring to what cannot be perceived at the beginning of time. Right? How did the universe come to be? Uh, that may come up. Um, others here, uh, maybe ad populum, and I don't mean that this just comes out uh, with tradition and culture, but when we think about our culture and the people that we're growing up with, well, so many people believe this, or so many people don't believe this. And that can be psychologically damaging to a person. Uh, but you think about figures like Jeremiah, who held his ground, understanding his relationship with God, and uh, that was in the midst of a generation that had turned away from uh, the Lord. Uh, also, you might have uh, common sense. So uh, common sense may be similar to intuition. Intuition might, uh, you might see this in art, right? It takes the uh, sign to be the reality. Within uh, various religious traditions, you might have rites uh, or uh, sacraments like baptism or circumcision or some other you know, handshake or something, and that means you're in. Uh, does it mean that you're in with God because you had some water sprinkled on you? Or immersion, should it be immersion? Does it matter uh, how the sign is given? So we can have all sorts of arguments uh, based upon this. Uh, this is to say the sign, baptism or circumcision, is the reality that is you have a real living relationship with God, you have a new heart to understand. That doesn't follow. The sign does not uh, mean that the reality is immediately present at that time. So we can uh, get uh, tripped up on that. And again, remember, that's not just individually, but we have entire communities that build up and reinforce, right? Everyone around me knows, or everyone around me believes uh, this. And so then we'll have within Christianity so many groups why? Uh, because we have persuasions that are, we're not focused on the truth. We're not focused on uh, considering the meaning of things. And uh, then in common sense, as I wrote here, uh, this would not be the sign as the reality, but an appearance is the reality. So you're flying into uh, Hawaii if you're uh, maybe privileged. I have not had that privilege. Uh, but you're flying into Hawaii, and as you uh, descend, you're seeing the change in the color of the water. Now, is the water actually changing color? No. No, it's, it's just the position of the perceiver that's changing. So you may say, oh, it appears to me that the world is flat. It's not. Uh, there's a Netflix documentary. It's really interesting how it ends. It's kind of like a gotcha. Uh, but uh, yeah, so common sense uh, being that we often take ourself and our position with respect to reality to be absolute. And so if you disagree with me, you're just so far from any uh, you know, vague truth. There, there's, there's nothing there. And so I may treat you like an idiot. What you're saying may seem so absurd to me because it's not common. 
And so we look around at, again, the people around us. We say, well, what is common to us? Uh, it's just common that you should know what a monkey wrench is, right? Why are you handing me a crescent wrench? So uh, these are informal fallacies. And as we think about the uh, particulars of challenges in our day and what we might get persuaded by, we may be persuaded by evolution, we may not be persuaded by evolution, but that's coming out in science and it's being taught within our schools. And that's uh, with a position called empiricism. And that uh, being very closely related to appearances reality. Okay, so you have these sort of meshing together and reinforcing one another. So tradition and culture and science uh, through common sense. You look at the bones, you look at the data. How am I on time? You look at the data and uh, it just says that these things are related. Right? Look at the primates. Look at us. You see any similarities? I mean, have you ever looked into their face? Look at their eyes. Can't you just feel the connection? So you got uh, maybe some intuition coming in here too. And all of that reinforces this idea, again, that uh, there's a relationship between us and them, that is the primates, and we have now uh, come from them, and they came from other, and then you go back all the way to uh, the first life, right? Why? Uh, that, and that life came from non-life. Well, maybe life and non-life are not so different. And maybe being and non-being are not so different. So empiricism is going to connect with the senses and putting emphasis on the senses that we know through the senses and we know through the senses only. And what we're doing here this morning is the uh, exact contradiction of that. That you need to question whether or not you know anything through your senses. And in fact, you know all things by reason, through argument. But when I was three, I was like learning what circles were and what squares were, and they don't fit into the same holes. Right? That's what we were doing. Wasn't that sense? Was, it was oriented with the senses. But think about what you know. What would be something that you know? Do you often take what you think you know to be true, and by that, uh, divorce yourself from what might be a means to coming to understand reality? How many times do you have to hit a block wall before you realize the wall's not going to move? Reality is not going to change or conform to what you think of it. And so here we get this idea of humility. That I might think that I know through my senses. So we see a culture around us that thinks they know a lot of things through their senses with not very much humility. And how many times are we going to run into the 
to the block wall. How many times until we realize this is not what is real? Uh, what is real again, uh, proceeding from the logos. This is what's true. The logos. By him, all things were made. Can you know that much from general revelation? Well, you would have to begin with, again, this idea of what you can know through reason and argument, not what you can know by your senses, or not what others have already believed around you. Uh, not uh, what may be, uh, even, even within, a, within a, a tradition, you're going to have a chieftain, right? You're going to have a chief, you're going to have a, a pope, and that person is going to be the voice of God, right? Ongoing revelation being given through this individual. And then that person may be raised up to a certain uh, level, and uh, you may have individuals appealing to that individual. What is, what's going on there? Are they appealing to the Logos? No, they're appealing to another finite person who may or may not be a true representative of God. And uh, that's going to cause you problems if you bought into this idea that this individual, the Pope, uh, has a foundation that could be a firm foundation in my life and a firm foundation in culture. Especially when you go to something like Acts 15 and you, you see, okay, well, this teaching is supposed to be upon the basis of Acts 15. Acts 15 being the, the apostles' teaching that the sign is not the reality, that baptism is not salvation through Christ, or excuse me, that if you're baptized, that you are saved through Christ. Uh, when the apostles are not saying that. I, I may have uh, scrambled my words there. Let me, let me speak a little bit more clearly. So Acts 15, you have a challenge of uh, the zealots, the Judaizers, coming and saying, you're saved by circumcision. That's the sign for that day. The sign in our day may be baptism. You're, so, you're uh, saved by baptism. Do we have those that are saying that? Yes. The Catholic tradition is saying that. And so then do we say, oh, well, that's, that's what uh, the apostles said, or that's what other individuals said. Well, we go back and we look at what was said uh, no, you're not saved through the sign. The sign and the reality are distinct. And then you have a tradition that's built up that says, no, the sign is the reality. But we're building on those guys. Well, those two things don't, don't work. They can't interconnect. You can't uh, say, I'm going to build on this foundation and then build over here and say, I'm building on that foundation. It's not the way works. So if you're going to build on the apostles' teaching, you have to understand the sign is not the reality and build on it that way. And this is just within the realm of Christianity. Of course, we can look at many religious traditions and, and see the same sorts of things. So I hope this uh, was helpful in just identifying, again, these are elements of our human, uh, 
humanness or mannishness, as uh, some philosophers or theologians might call it, and they're proceeding as we were created by our creator, they're proceeding from ultimately from that creator, and we should be able to make sense of them. But in our mind, when we're not focused on reason and argument, when we're not concerned with meaning, of course we say we are. We're that fool that says in his heart there is no God. Uh, we go astray, and that comes out in these informal fallacies. And it becomes a poison to us in our daily lives as we think one thought after another. It becomes a poison to others when we speak and behave in the same way as it comes out of our thinking. And so we want to go back and we want to take those informal fallacies captive and show, yeah, I'm ultimately concerned with persuasion. I've not been concerned with truth. And that's going to be the crux of it. At that point, we need to crucify that old life of uh, being persuaded by something other than what's rational, and only then can we find meaning.